Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Why Would You Tell Me That, a podcast with me, Dave Moore, him, Neil Delamere, and we try and bring you wild stories, crazy facts, things that you don't know, but you probably should. That's what we're here to do. Uh, we are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. You can follow us on Instagram. He's at Neil Delamere Comedy. I am at Dave Today FM. The show is at Why Would You Tell Me That. And thank you to everybody who's been getting in touch because we've been getting lots of suggestions of episodes comments from people who are enjoying it and then pointing us in the other direction. Uh, so much stuff, really fascinating. So please keep it going. Uh, get in touch with us at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram. But it is not my turn to wow anybody today. It is Neil Delamere's turn. So Neil, what have you got for us? Well, in part two, we're going to be chatting to Dan Schreiber. And Dan is a QI elf. So he's the guy who comes up with, well, he's amongst the people who comes up with all the amazing stuff on that oh. venerable BBC institution, yeah. Wow, like that is so, why would you tell me that material? Absolutely. Uh, he's going to tell us about nobelitis, Nobel syndrome. Have you ever heard of it? No. Okay, it's it's a remarked upon phenomenon. Let's just say that. It's kind of yeah. tongue in cheek, uh, but that might have affected some of the people who won the Nobel Prize. Enough of them for people to go, oh, that's quite interesting. And, and I presume you mean maybe in a slightly either negative or questionable way? In it, yeah, nobody likes success, Dave. No, particularly if they've, no. they've done well already. No, no, no. It is a questionable way, right? Knock those bad boys down. Yeah, exactly. Yes, begrudgery. If that's what, if, there, if we're about one thing on this show, after random knowledge, it's tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. So for part one, this is one of the weirdest things, by the way, I've I've come across when reading about the Nobel Prize. Okay. Is that drinking milk is linked to Nobel prizes. Drinking right? milk. Yeah. Okay. Let me explain right, this. So, right, right. so the New England Journal of Medicine reported a strong association between a nation's chocolate consumption. And Nobel laureate prowess, shall we say? Wow! And they, yeah, and they kind of thought it was uh, might be the flavonoid content of the chocolate, and that helps your brain, right? So <laughs> these t- these two doctors, uh, doctors uh, Sarah Linthwaite and Geraint Fuller, right? They thought, well, a lot of the time people have chocolate, but they also have milk. So why don't we look at milk? And Nobel Prize success. <laughs> I love I love scientists like this. Yeah. Who are clearly just sitting there drinking milk going, can we get a grant for this? Right? <laughs> so they looked at 2007 data from the Food and Agricultural Organization on per capita milk consumption in 22 countries, as well as the info provided by the author of the chocolate theory. Of course. And, and they found this association, right? So Sweden has the most Nobel laureates per 10 million people, 33. Right. Sweden that has the Nobel Prize committee. Hmm. <laughs> they don't need hmm. chocolate. They need a passport. Yeah, it reminds me of that time I had to debate, is Catholicism the best religion in the 
Vatican National Debating Championships. <laughs> so, but they get through the most milk per head of population. Right. 340 kilograms every year. Switzerland gets through 300 kilograms of milk every year and has a Nobel Hall. That's kind of similar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on the other end of the scale, China has the lowest number of Nobel laureates in its population. Um, but it also has the lowest milk consumptions. Of I'm seeing it. I'm seeing this pattern. These scientists know what they're talking about. They they do. They do. I mean, like I think they're. It is very much tongue in cheek, and it's not causal. It's it's correlated, shall we say? And right. they also don't know what Nobel Prize winners actually drunk or <laughs> ate. But as I'm claiming a link between Nobel prizes and milk, yeah. I actually went down the rabbit hole. So we're going down the dairy road in part one. I love milk. I love cheese. I love all dairy products. Dave. Same. Bring it on. I, have I told you about the time I was um, I was sharing an Uber a, a million years ago in Miami, and there was a, a guy beside me, and I said, "Oh, where are you from?" And he goes, "Colombia." Have I told you this? No. I said, "Where are you from?" And he goes, "Colombia." And I went, "Ah, oh, Colombia, Valderamos, Colombia, Gabriel Garcia Marquez." Um, I'd lo- you know, I'd I'd love to go there. I'd absolutely love to go there. Uh, Shakira, of course. And he goes, where are you from? And I said, Ireland. And there was a pause. And he had nothing. And then he went, I love your butter. That's what he said, right? In, in that strained way. And there's this, I just kind of looked at him. And then he went, because he thought he needed to add more. He went, uh, uh, it's addictive. And all I could think of was, surely it's not the most addictive thing that a man from Bogota has ever encountered. I mean, no one with the best will in the world has tried to smuggle a pound of Kerrygold up their hoop through customs. Speak for yourself, Neil Delamere. <laughs> You're going on holiday soon. <laughs> oh, people like to have the rashes and the sausages, so who knows? If you were going to smuggle something, butter is probably the easiest thing to smuggle. I was going to say, I'm not sure how it would survive, but it'd be very easily put up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm mad into the butter, mad into cheese, and okay. you're into the both as well, yes? I'm into everything, yeah, absolutely. Like, the only thing that I struggle with remotely is in the last, whatever, 20 years, I have moved from full-fat milk to what we call in this country, super milk which right. is some kind of milk marketing campaign that's worked very well on me. But it's just, it's it's that kind of medium ground, low fat. So like, I'm not like, you know, I don't want low fat butter. I don't want low fat yogurt. I don't want, but for some reason I've moved to the milk. And when I have to have tea with yeah. the full fat milk or cereal with the full fat milk, it's a bit of an adventure. And I'm a bit of like, ooh, this isn't the same as I always like it. So um, <laughs> definitely, I've definitely, look, I, I'll consume anything though. Anything dairy related get it into me even the cows themselves oh well that's fair enough um actually interestingly in the research for this i came across like the guts of well between 70 uh, between 60 and 70 percent of people around the world can't actually uh, process milk sorry that high yeah yeah once we get into once we lose uh, um the particular enzyme in us that we have as babies uh, we get to a certain age most adults around the world can't do it that's phenomenal but I'm, I'm going to tell you more stuff. About okay, go on, go on, go on, go on. I'm interrupting you. Too. What's, go on. what's the most expensive cheese in the world? <laughs> the one that was wrapped inside the butter that was shot inside the man <laughs> that came through the customs. <laughs> uh, the most expensive cheese in the world is one of those big ones that the lads take out. It's almost, they're stored like wines and they cut mm. them with the big sharp thing and then they kind of go, ooh, look at this cheese that has been here for 14 years. Now you will smell it too. <laughs> No, not one, not one I mean, of them. That, that is quite expensive. <laughs> but um, no, you either know this or you don't. And I did not. It's called 
Pule cheese. It is the most expensive cheese in the world. It will cost you about $600 for a single pound. What? Which is dear enough for you to hear it on the, on the news. Like, police have confiscated easy singles with a street value of 40,000 euro. <laughs> it is donkey cheese, my friend. What? Which does sound like an insult to the playground, doesn't it? Donkey <laughs> cheese. Donkey cheese. So, uh, he doesn't wash. They're going to take him into care. Actually, cheese. it sounds like the guy I used to buy things from from Colombia and Bogota. Donkey cheese. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. That sorry. is exceptional <laughs> and horrific. What, two sides of the same coin. I like to think the exceptional side was the Neil Delamere part of your personality <laughs> and the day before it was the other yeah, part. Right. One place in the world makes this. Okay. It's on one farm in a special nature reserve. It's Slobodan. Simich founded this reserve 24 years ago in Serbia. It's one of three areas in all of former Yugoslavia that protects a special endangered breed of Balkan donkey. I just like saying the word Balkan donkey, but do you know the way there's certain words? We drove through Carrie the other day and I saw someone's name, I think it was on a hairdresser's, and her name was Veronica Broderick. And that is just a lovely word to say, <laughs> isn't it? My friend was called Steph- Stephanie Doherty and she didn't like that, but I think Stephanie Doherty and Broad- Veronica Broderick are brilliant words. I think Veronica Broderick's Balkan donkey is a. <laughs> Yes, should be a thing. I don't know what it is, but it should be a thing. You understand this? It's just so satisfying to say hello to Verona, Veronica Broderick and indeed your Balkan donkey. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. So presumably, like yes. there, there's most of the cheese we consume is is cow cheese. I've eaten sheep cheese. I really like it. Actually, it's delicious. But I presume you can make donkey cheese and they make it all over the world. But this one is the one reserve, as you said, where they protect this endangered donkey species, and that's what makes this one a delicious and be expensive ah well it's very hard to make donkey cheese <laughs> i can't believe i'm saying any of this <laughs> this stuff is made by 60 percent donkey milk and 40 percent goat milk and requires many months and many donkeys to do because donkey milk doesn't have enough fat in it and casein and so it's quite hard to get it to coagulate so oh. apparently um slobodan and this one other dude who knows a secret recipe can make this cheese and other people have tried to figure out how to do it you have to milk milk the donkeys by hand because otherwise the the machines block Uh, a female donkey is pregnant for a year and two weeks and obviously it'll only produce milk once it's had a baby i don't know what the male donkeys are doing at this stage why she is pregnant for a year and two weeks i think probably just wandered around the paddock going listerine can clean your whole mouth or whatever it is (laughs) (laughs) apologies to our scottish listeners um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then you have to wait for another three months once the baby has taken all the milk for itself and then they gather the milk. 6.6 gallons of milk to make one kilogram of cheese. Wow. That is a lot. Yeah. And also, I, mean, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I've never seen a donkey's udder. <laughs> like, I've... I'm not, at the oh, same that time, is certainly the uh, bit for clipping out for an ad. <laughs> by the same token, I've never seen a sheep's udder either. So I suppose... Cows are just a bit more blatant about it. You know, they're just strutting around the place going, here's my udders, check them out. But like, all, all animals have them to some degree. Well, mammals, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You don't think about donkeys giving milk, do you? No. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were a kid and it was like, little donkey, little donkey. Do you remember on that the, song? On, on the, the dusty, dusty road. dusty yeah. road. Yeah. Plodding onward. Which, uh, what was it? Got a keep on going. Plodding onward. With your precious little love. Cheese! Cheese! Loads of cheese! 
I think they meant Slobodan is after you. <laughs> Check him out. You're going to his farm. <laughs> you hopefully you're one of the productive ones. Oh dear, you're gonna be harmed. Donkey cheese. Does it have a name? Donkey. I presume they don't call it donkey cheese. Is there like is there some fancy it's, name for it? It's uh, pule, pule cheese. Oh, pule, pule, pule. And pule, you pule. cannot sell it in the EU, I think, because it is not pasteurized because Slobodan thinks all the goodness and uh, the taste goes out of it at that stage. Okay. So Bath is still the most expensive cheese in the world. And there's not a lot of it as well. Well, I think, yeah, as, as usual, as we discovered in the episode we did with um, Josh Luber about sneakers and indeed the episode we did with David McWilliams about the tulip, scarcity is everything Scarce. in terms of value. So there you go. So if there's very little of it, the price is going to rocket. Yeah, and he's got about 200 odd donkeys. And uh, so they can't make that much cheese. But the cheese they make is massively expensive. Let me ask you a question. Oh, go on. What killed Abraham Lincoln's ma? And don't go, (laughs) you shot in the head at a play. That family never learned. Those are that. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln's ma. I mean, this is a pretty specific piece of history you would need me to know. I mean, if I was on Mastermind, my subject was American presidents. And the guy asked me, what killed Abraham Lincoln? I'd be like, ah, come on. <laughs> yeah, but given what we're talking about, she's either been kicked in the head by a donkey, she's been killed by a Serbian, or Veronica Broderick assassinated her. I'm going to guess she was so lactose intolerant that one day she went, I just want some cottage cheese. And they went, no, don't do it, Mrs. Lincoln. And, and I, she I exploded. Know. Yeah. You're not far off. Milk oh, the killer. Oh, how? So the white snake root is a plant. It's this shade-loving plant. It's found throughout Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, Western Ohio. Okay. The problem with this is that cows eat it, free-range cows. It's pretty ubiquitous. They eat it. It's harmless to them. However, it does produce <laughs> the neurotoxin tramitol, which is lethal to human milk drinkers. What? Yeah, it was called milk sickness. And this used to kill a lot of people in the U.S., it usually develops when someone drinks the milk from a cow. It can occur if you eat meat from an affected cow. In the autumn of 1818, nearly two years after Thomas Lincoln had moved his family to the Little Pigeon Creek settlement in southern Indiana, Abraham's mother became desperately ill after caring for some neighbors who were sick. Nancy Hanks Lincoln, yes, by the way, is related to Tom Hanks distantly, not joking, oh. died of milk sickness. About two weeks later, on the 5th of October, 1818. And has pasteurization eliminated that from dairy cows that are currently in those regions you mentioned? Or is there some other process involved? Because presumably they're still, if they're free range, they're still eating that plant. But yet you're not hearing about people dying left, right and centre. Free free range. Uh, It was most common in dry areas, apparently, when cattle wandered from poor pasture lands to wooded areas in search of food. So obviously then they're eating eating the weed. When the pioneers cleared the woodlands, cattle then got adequate pasture. So illnesses or cases right. of illnesses diminished. And the chances of you getting it today, very, very, very reduced because, as you said, improved farming techniques and techniques used in the modern dairy industry. Wow. But this is, yeah, nearly, sickness. nearly 200 articles pertaining to milk sickness were uh, most of them found in medical journals can be found in the library of the Surgeon General in Washington, D.C. Fascinating. And people didn't know what it was until like the 20th century. Yeah. So milk killed Abraham Lincoln's ma. 
That is a fact worth taking away from any episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? It would be a very bizarre episode of Mastermind. It would be very, very specific. I would imagine when you got your 10 out of 10 questions right on Father Ted um, and you were sitting there smug because that would be your specialist subject. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you, that you think I'd only be capable of 10. Well, I said 10 out of 10. Well, okay, that's fair. That's fair. I, I find Mastermind, you're only allowed to que- answer the questions that they ask you. I know you're very good. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, as the yet unasked questions. I mean, that should be around. It should, it should be around. What questions was I going to ask you? Answer <laughs> yeah. now. This this is a tie break. Ooh, how will the set list? Will it be based on number passes? No, it'll be based on the entirely hypothetical series of questions that we might have asked you. And lastly, for part okay. one, this is amazing. So you are a fan of lots of things Russian because you, culturally speaking, because you speak Russian. I do. I lived there for a year. You have lived in Russia. Did you ever hear of the folk custom in parts of Russia and parts of Finland where they would put a live frog into a bucket of milk to keep the milk fresh? (laughs) No. (laughs) This was a thing. So frogs keep milk fresh in buckets? Yes. Yeah. Now, I don't know how long. They left it in for. I have an image of a Russian just teabagging Kermit <laughs> into a pint of Avonmore. <laughs> Maybe you want information. Maybe they combine waterboarding and milk. I don't know. But somebody, well, actually, I know who it was. Um, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Decided to think, I wonder if there's anything in this. Because you know the way folk uh, remedies, often they study, scientists study this and then go, oh, actually, it has a compound in cabbage leaves, yes, for example, that yes. does help with cracked nipples, which is a big thing for breastfeeding. Um, yes, frog skins, they found. They have a handful of, uh, a handful of recent scientific studies showed that frog skins are lush sources of antibacterial peptides, including some with the ability to battle such hard bastards in the bacteria word, world as MRSA. And salmonella. Frog skin. So hang on. Let me just go back for a second. Is said frog expired when he's popped in or is he swimming around? Live. Okay. So live frog swimming around in a bucket. Mm. Nobody gets sick. I remember when we talked about the pregnancy test frog Mm. and you explained how somebody copped on that if you, you put pregnant woman's wee into a frog and it will spontaneously ovulate, meaning that the woman from whom the we was taken is pregnant. So it was a pregnancy test. Yeah. And at the time I asked you the same question I'm about to ask now, which is who in the hell figured this out first? <laughs> who, whose milk was slightly going off in this Russian sunshine at their summer dacha. Yeah. And Igor went, you know what I do? I'll go to get frog from, from Lakeside. I put him in milk. What are you doing that for? It kept milk fresh. Everyone know this. Like, who who was the first guy who went, yeah, yeah, this will work. I think it's the opposite. I think somebody had a bucket of milk and Igor went, this milk has not gone off. What is different about this milk compared to your milk? Oh, look, little froggy. How do you say the frog is in the milk in Russian? Oh, Lyagushka uh, Vmolakor. There's... You actually know that. that well, is... I, know. I know how to say frog. I know how to say milk. So, <laughs> Liagushka. It's a good word, isn't it? Liagushka. It, is, it does sound like it's something that would be said at a park bench in a 1980s Cold War film <laughs> as a code, wouldn't it? Some guy just the goes, frog is, the frog is in the milk. Liagushka. And, the, and the, you know the way there's always a, a response 
Yes, yes. Response is the toad has churned it to butter. <laughs> no, no, no. The response is the milk is still fresh. <laughs> <laughs> is that why Americans call it half and half? It's half frog, half milk. <laughs> Let me throw this at you about the word for milk in Russian. Okay, so oh, yeah. it's M O L O K O Moloko, or uh, some people might know the music, the, the band Moloko. Moloko, yeah. Okay, so it's Moloko. Yeah. Uh, but in Russia, the weirdest thing about this, ma- the biggest country, physically the biggest country in the world. And when you go from the very Eastern European, Western Russia side, yeah, 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 yeah. So you've got your kind of very close to Finland, very close to Hungary, that kind of area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go into like Northern Siberia, where people resemble what we term, you know, Eskimos or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's what they look like up there. Then you go down towards the Mongolian deserts and the plains, and they look more like the people from China. Then you go right the way over to Eastern uh, Russia, Vladivostok, which really means very, very, very Eastern. Uh, you go all the way over there and the people rep- resemble people from Japan. So th- they look so different. All the people on this landmass, but there's no accent difference. So what? yeah, when you speak to somebody from St. Petersburg, Moscow, like Yekaterinburg, Vladivostok, Siberia, Murmansk, wherever, pretty much they all have the same accent. There are differences between urban and rural things, and, and most of them are actually, they're not even accent differences. You know the way sometimes, you know, annoying Americans say like all the time. It's like yeah. there, and it's like there. So rural farming communities in Russia will say, I say, in the yeah. way annoying American teenage girls will say like. I say. Okay. Um, they'll use the word I say, and they'll say, ya govaryu, which is I say, except they're from the country. So they'll say, ya hovaryu. So every second kind of word is like, every second word in the sentence is, you have a do, you have a do, you have a do. Just like, it's just constantly in there, like, 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 I say, I say, I say, I say. But one of the words where you can actually figure out where someone is from is the word milk. Okay. So the way okay. Russian works is M-O-L-O-K-O. Only the last one is stressed as an O and the other two are A sounds. So malako. Yeah. Okay. Except if you're from Moscow, you say Moloko. Really? And there's pretty much, I lived there for a year. Now, look, this was a long time ago. My Russian is rusty. But when I lived there for a year, this was pretty much the only accent difference I ever heard anybody have was somebody said Moloko one day. And I went, Moloko? You mean Moloko? And they were like, oh, no, I'm from Moscow. We say Moloko. And I was like, an accent difference. Oh, my God. Well, if you're a Russian, listen to this, and um, as in like a podcast listener, not you know in the Secret Service, and um, <laughs> get involved and let us know is Dave, Dave still right on that? Because I like the way you say it, Maloko, because like Maloko in Ireland, you would that would be pronounced differently every fifty yards. True. I knew a fella from Nobber in County Meath who it was their, his favorite band, Maloko. That's what he called them, Maloko. <laughs> Maloko. Whereas if you're is thrown in if, there. if you're from Dublin, be like, all right, Maloko. Yeah. And there's definitely got to be somebody who Maloko. knows, like I do, knows Russian is stressed differently. There's definitely yeah. some Irish fella going around going, I absolutely love Maloko. Like yeah. that single they released in like in, in 2001, absolute banger, Maloko. South County, South County, Moscow. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love Maloko. I love Maloko. Maloko, so great, guys. <laughs> Oh my god! Anyway, sorry, sorry so for um, cool. for slightly distracting us there, but it was just sort of interesting that when we put the no. Lyagushka in the Malako, that we should say that that Malako is that word. 
Well, if people want a little bit more detail on this, um, it was an ancient Russian way of keeping milk from going sour, putting the frog into the bucket of milk. Scientists have identified a wealth of new antibiotic substances in the skin of the Russian brown frog that was specific about it. Uh, and the study appeared in this um, ACS Journal of Proteum Research. A guy called A.T. Lebedev and his colleagues did the research. Well, lucky again that Igor had the brown frog that hopped into his bucket of milk and not, you know, some other local frog, which wouldn't have remotely helped anyone in their sourness. And it would have just been like, get frog out of milk. Milk tastes gross now. Well, I think I think really what we we have to look on the plus side of this, you know, if you're ever in a care home or hospital and, you know, all all hospitals around the world pretty much are, are under a lot of pressure. If you do get MRSA or, or salmonella and they don't have enough antibiotics right just grab a frog listen I, I realize you don't have the correct antibiotic for me in the fridge there you wouldn't have a russian brown frog, brown frog. <laughs> mary mary why are you leaving uh, why are you leaving dead flies in the window why, why is the window open? why are you leaving it's almost like you're trying to lure something in <laughs> i feel fine now i feel fine you're just licking a natterjack toad oh, that's close enough salamanders, toads, frogs, other amphibians. Because, of course, they live in these places where uh, bacteria lives, so they need to create a compound on their skin. Yes. That is the first line of defense against bacteria. And Russians and Finns, many years ago, thought, oh, maybe if that doesn't matter. Smart. Very smart. Very smart. Love it. But that is enough about healing amphibians, Dave. Uh, coming up in part two, we're talking to author, QI Elf, and No Such Thing as a Fish podcaster, Dan Schreiber, about Nobel. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? Now, Dave, as part of my ongoing campaign, some would say a never-ending campaign, to get on QI and BBC One, <laughs> uh, I am delighted to tell you that we're now joined by a QI elf, one of the team behind uh, all of the amazing facts that they give us. He's also a quarter of the world-famous No Such Thing as a Fish podcast wow. and has written a book that critics describe as class. And by critics, I mean me. It's called <laughs> The Theory of Everything Else. Dan Schreiber, how are you? I'm good, but is that why I'm here? Is this just a, another ruse to get on QI? It, it's effectively just like an intervention by his agent is all it is. That's really <laughs> what it is, Dan. This isn't even being recorded. There's no podcasts. <laughs> it's a very elaborate sort of uh, scam, isn't it? Basically, this is uh, this is Ocean's 14, the low-budget version where this is the scam. Well, that's worked. I'll, I'll, I'll call the bosses. I'll get you on next week. Put a word in. Yeah. Um, no, I, I picked up the book. I was in Donegal and I, I DM'd Dan and I said, your your book is in Donegal. It's reached the, the northwest of Ireland. It's a cracker. And I want you to talk about some stuff from the book. Uh, Dave, you're going to love this sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm looking forward I to said, it already. I said, what do you want to talk about? And he goes, Nobel syndrome. And I went, okay. Okay. I'm all ears. Dan, what is Nobel syndrome? Okay, well, it's Nobel syndrome. It's known as Nobelitis, the Nobel disease. This is a thing that appears to affect science winners of the Nobel Prize after they've won the award. It's a air quotes disease that people have noticed <laughs> to immediately leap into, which is the sense that now that you are powerful and you have a Nobel Prize, that you can say any old shit that you think and people will believe you oh, because no. you're a scientist. And we've seen great scientists fall into pseudoscience territory and fringe territory just because they suddenly feel the power of their genius having been rewarded, that they're just an expert on everything, despite having no knowledge of the territory. So would it be like, a, like uh, the host of the most successful radio show in Ireland commercially thinking that he could launch a successful <laughs> podcast despite the fact he knows nothing about the market or uh, the person he's very, working with. very quickly humbled by the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> would, would it be kind of like that, Dan? I'd say that's a really... This is a second intervention, yes. I believe. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is kind of like Elon Musk in that in some... Like, he's very successful in was one field and now we see him pronouncing on various different things and getting things wrong, including losing 44 billion quid's worth of uh, money in, in investing in Twitter. But it's it's this idea that you've gotten the shield of not even respectability, but, you know, greatness from Nobel. So you're kind of a bit more likely to take risks pronouncing on other things. Well, it's also, it's people who've harbored kind of batshit ideas, but have sort of kept them under the carpet, just sweeping them away until they get this platform and they feel the power that they can do it. So there's examples, the 1954 winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and he also got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1962, a guy Sorry, called... Sorry, even before we go into his madness, how impressive is that? I know, right? So you're going to trust everything that this guy says, right? Yes. This guy is, this, he's the shit. He's called Linus Pauling. And um, after he got his award, he became a real huge proponent of eugenics. Um, he said that oh, anyone with a genetic defect should be given a mark on their head so that if you're in a club and you see them, you go, well, I shouldn't mate with you because you, you're one of those defective oh, people. wow. This guy won the Peace Prize, you know? <laughs> wow. I, I imagine him out on Ash Wednesday night just not, not touching anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he 
also the man, uh, first of all, he's the only man, uh, uh, Dave, who has won, or only person who's won two unshared Nobel Prizes. And he is the reason that lots of people take vitamin C, because that's his other kind of mad idea, isn't it, Dan? Yeah, I think that's right. He's, I mean, it's quite rare to win two Nobel Prizes. Usually, as you say, they're shared. So like Marie Curie has a double Nobel Prize. I mean, she slightly heads in towards uh, Nobelitis territory. Oh, really? Well, her husband, Pierre Curie, he suddenly started going to seances during the period of spiritualism, and she would go with him. And he believed that the answers to science and the meaning of the universe could be obtained via the the spirits on the other side so yeah he was he was quite a batshit guy i think the the biggest example of batshit for me and nobelitis it's what i opened my book on is the guy who invented pcr so pcr i'd never heard of it prior to the pandemic yeah and then suddenly globally you know all of us suddenly know what this is so the guy who invented pcr is a guy called carrie mullis and he won the Nobel Prize for it in the 90s. He shared the category win with someone else, but his was specifically for PCR. So it was a one-handed invention. Mm. The same year that he invented PCR is the same year that he also claimed that he was abducted into space by a glowing talking raccoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, in some ways, I'm really happy he said that. (laughs) <laughs> so he, he invented PCR and LSD by the sounds of things. Well, he used to do LSD in the early days and he did it with like the originals. He did it with Hoffman. He oh. he was part of that scene. And I mean, his stories are wild. He thinks, well, he's, he's passed away now. Sadly, he passed away just before the pandemic hit. So he didn't get to see oh. how PCR became this global savior. Um, but he, so he was in his house, Is he has like a countryside house in a bit of California, and he was going out one night about 12 a.m. to go to the toilet, had an outhouse toilet, so he was traveling down. And as he was walking, he says, you know, he admits very readily when he's on drugs and when he's not. He said, I wasn't on any drugs. And he's walking down the hill with a flashlight when he notices a glowing thing underneath a tree. So he points his flashlight at it, and he sees a raccoon looking at him. And the raccoon says... Hello, doctor. <laughs> and, and he thinks he says hello, but what he then remembers is waking up four hours later on a completely different road on his property. And it's and it's like light that is coming up at 4 a.m. Uh, in the dawn. And he has no idea where his flashlight is. He has no idea how he got there. And he goes on to spend the rest of his life occasionally trying to crack the case of what the hell was this raccoon that was talking to me? It reminds me of the time that Monty Burns wandered into the forest and came out and going, we wish you light and love as he he floated out of the forest. I do like the fact that the raccoon used his correct title. Like he said, hello, doctor. If I was walking, the, if I was a doctor and was walking down the street, and the raccoon just said hello and didn't use my title, I'm not stopping. I don't care how much he's glowing, but the fact that he's glowing and he used your correct title, that is wonderful. I wonder is say. that the is that the kind of inspiration for Rocket Raccoon in Guardians of the Galaxy? Right. I mean, I mean, you'd hope so. You really would hope so. I don't know how popular the story was when it happened, and he had he on his property he had this sort of like little forest area where it was a bit circular and he always got a sensation that something had happened so he used to get scared when he was walking near it 
And one night he thought, well, this is where the raccoon must have taken. And he wasn't 100% sure that it was an alien abduction, as in he, he, that's, that's where he landed on at one point. But he, um, he one night just went into this forest with a gun and just, just started yelling and just going, I'm not afraid of you, and started just shooting <laughs> random rounds into this forest, hoping to, I don't know, exercise the, uh, the raccoon spirit. Out I mean, there's, there. there's an awful lot. I mean, there's a lot going on in that. We have to unpack that story, Dan. I'm thinking of uh, the poor man. Have you ever seen at the Alamo, you know, where Davy Crockett is wearing the raccoon hat? And yeah, I just kind of think what that caused flashbacks for him. <laughs> that is like, it's not the natural thing. If I saw a raccoon and then didn't know where I was and woke up in another part of the property, even if I was a heavy drug user, I wouldn't naturally jump to. I've been abducted by aliens. Would you? Hmm. Well, there's a reason he gets there. But no, I agree. I think it took a while for him to get to the alien abduction thing. Because this guy has, I mean, his stories, He, you have to read his autobiography. It's called Dancing Naked in the Minefield. And it's, uh, <laughs> the cover is a topless him holding a surfboard. You know, this is post-Nobel Prize. Fantastic. And he makes claims like he said he was doing drugs one night. I think he was doing the equivalent of, you know, balloons. He was, you know... But he was pumping the gas straight in via a pipe. Oh, sounds healthy. <laughs> yeah, so he, he takes too much and passes out and the pipe stays in his mouth. So he should have OD'd. But he wakes up, no one else is in the house with him, and the pipe is like across the room from him. And he's thinking, how the hell did that get across the room? It's a bit of a mystery. Then months later, he's at a party and a woman comes up to him and says, by the way, you're welcome. And he says, what for? She says, I was the one who took the pipe out of your mouth from the uh, the gas that was going in. Now, he said he, he hadn't told anyone this story. So how the hell? He was like, did you break into my house? Did you, did you take it out physically? And she said, no, I was traveling through the astral plane and I saw your property and I came in and... And picked it out and he believed it so that's a story that he sticks to as well i just want to remind you this is the man who yeah. invented pcr yeah. the yeah. game the biggest game changer in chemistry that we've had in centuries it's literally changed everything from forensics to archaeology we found richard the third through it fingerprinting has an accuracy of beyond 95 percent now as a result of it chemists say it's the biggest change ever this is this man we are talking about. Can I just say this, this has come full on. circle? Because I, when I got a PCR test for COVID, I don't know who took the little swab out of my mouth. And then a couple of months later, a woman walked by and said, I was in the Croke Park testing centre. No, on the I, astral plane in the Croke Park. I know, I'd fallen asleep, you see. And she he was walking by. Flight FR122 back from Santa Ponza. It's a Ryan airplane, the astral plane. And she looked down <laughs> and she saw, she, she, she was going to Astral Plain South, which is near Astral Plain. We get to get a bus to it. <laughs> that is absolutely oh, amazing. I love him. Like in, like in so many ways, he's obviously, you know, wrong. <laughs> Just on so many levels. But at the same time, you have to admire coming up with, what, as you said, one of the most important discoveries in chemistry ever. And then also just going, I'm just going to take loads of drugs and be really open about it and get abducted by raccoons. See ya. Well, he wasn't. The weird thing is, I when I wrote about him, you kind of fall in love with these characters because they're very sort of I don't know, Hunter S. Thompson-esque. You know, they've got this thing. Unfortunately, and I'm so pissed off with him for this, he, he wasn't a great guy. 
And oh. his no his nobilitis were things like climate change denial. Oh, sorry, he hang on. So, so what you've already told us wasn't even his nobilitis. nobilitis. <laughs> oh, no. 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 I haven't even gone to the nobilitis. Raccoon abduction is not his nobilitis. No, he, he yeah, club, uh, global climate uh, control, he thought was not a thing. The, the scariest one where he actually probably led to a lot of deaths was he claimed that HIV did not lead to AIDS. And as a result, a lot of medications in third world countries were dictators who were trying just to to sort of use any excuse not to have to medicate their people would use the words of people like him to say, look, a Nobel Prize winner says that this is not connected. And so the sort of the yang to the yin of him saving all these lives, there's a lot of destruction in his world right. as well. And he used to like randomly just, he would do lectures on PCR and just randomly just put topless women pictures. It is just <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> and there's some boobs. Anyway, the next... PCR, Mike, in this case, stands for pretty class rack. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Um, the famous one, apart from Linus Paul, which we will get back to, Dave, yeah. and, and is James Watson, of course. So who's he? Well, he's the, uh, the co-creator or co-discoverer of DNA. So you had Crick and Watson. Crick and Watson, yes. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so Crick, you know, he wrote a whole book about how he thought aliens had seeded life on Earth directly and deliberately by putting chemicals in a canister and lobbing it to to earth but that's actually kind of plausible so that's fine okay but you could argue that's sitting in novelitis territory but i think he had ever so slight tongue-in-cheek about it but right. I, it was a he wrote a whole book about it he was serious about it and and there's thoughts and a lot of scientists say that this probably wasn't the case but there's thoughts that it was an lsd trip that helped him to picture the double helix okay that 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 was off the back of of LSD experimentation. A lot of scientists say that's not true, but I I I feel like it's on the fence when you look at the uh, the research. I am seeing a pattern here between no, Nobel incredible chemistry scientists and LSD. Yeah, Maybe we're all not operating on astral plane. We should be operating on. Well, there's a guy called Merlin Sheldrake who wrote a book recently called Entangled Life, which is a, it won a big science prize a couple of years ago, and it's all about how mushrooms and the mycelium network are actually really intelligent and chatting to each other, intelligent and not yeah. human intelligence, yeah. but. He opens his book in the first few pages by saying he was struggling with a problem with how a mushroom and a flower interacted. And the university he was at was running a thing where they said, come and take LSD and see how it affects your, <laughs> your understanding of science. So he took LSD specifically to become a mushroom and work out the problem from the inside. And he did. He did. He worked it out. That's he figured it out. Yeah. By, by being a mushroom. By actually... Do you, know, the mushroom. do you know when they say to catch a criminal, you must think like a criminal? Yeah. <laughs> so to, to outsmart a mushroom, you must first become the mushroom. This is the Karate Kid film that we haven't seen, but we need. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi just gets off his tits on a weird toadster. Champignon, champignon. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is, that is top quality work, Dave. Uh, Top quality work. <laughs> uh, so James Watson uh, describes yeah. the double oh, yeah, helix. So this, this, this was Crick. Sorry, we were talking about Crick a minute mm. ago. Now we're moving on to Watson. Okay. But Watson Watson gets the Nobel Prize for describing it with Crick, and then goes a bit mad in terms of his views of race and intelligence after that. Yeah. 
he thinks that white people are mentally superior uh intelligence wise to most races uh he he thinks anyone with african heritage is is going to be less superior to us um and he just, you know, just went out and said that. I've got bad news for the scientists because if you trace it all back, we're all Africans. Yes. So he's got some really bad news coming his way. Exactly. Oh, so he presumably professed this around publicly then, did he? Oh, yeah. It's recently, it's kind of 2017, 2018 in a documentary as well. He became the first living noblest to sell his medal in 2014. Because yeah. as you might imagine, loads of people and loads of uh, institutions distance themselves from his Yeah, funding dries up pretty quickly when you start coming out with a racism card like that, I would imagine. I, I think, it might be a different person, but I think he sold his um, his medal and the person who bought it just gave it back to him, as in the person just treated it as right. an excuse to give them money and then gave it right back to them. But yeah, yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's a dangerous one. So the reason um, you take vitamin C, Dave, when you have a cold is pretty much because of, of polling, who we mentioned earlier on. Yeah. In the 1970s, uh, 1970, he came up with this book, Vitamin C and the Common Cold, and he encouraged Americans to consume something like 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C. And a review of nearly 30 studies looking at people with colds and um, taking the normal daily dose of vitamin C found that it reduced the cold's length by 8%. So if you have a cold that lasts, say, five days, It'd be shortened by 10 hours. But he also, he came up with sort of like, um, it could help um, prolong terminal cancer patients' lives. Oh, that's and, very dangerous. But the controls weren't matched for age, stage of the cancer, quality of everyday functioning. So the data is, you can't interpret it like. Mm. And I wonder, yeah. Is that a lot like the 10,000 steps thing? You know, did it just kind of come out because of him then that we all do? So, I mean, I genuinely will take vitamin C on a like semi-regular basis in those little effervescent tablets going, well, sure, look, I'm feeling a bit like I might have a cold. I'll take one of these. But like, it's not really proven that it's going to help me. That's probably more placebo. Yeah. And psychologically, then I feel strong. Have you got any other examples? Well, I, I the one, the, the more sort of on the lighter end of Nobelitis uh, is Wolfgang Pauli. This guy was known as like the eagle eye of science. He was, he was amazing, but he had a couple of things. One thing was he was obsessed. When you say he's the eagle eye of science, does that mean he had one hit, but it was a banger? Like, <laughs> <laughs> he just came out and said, save tonight. Fight the breakup dog come tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just impressed you know the lyrics. That's incredible. No, no, I didn't know loads of lyrics from a very short window of time <laughs> between 1994 and 2002. Do you know his what? Sister, it, it his sister surprise... Nina was a much better scientist than this guy. <laughs> but what do we know? It wouldn't surprise me if this guy, Eagle Eye Cherry, actually did win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> we don't know anything else he did after that one hit. Brian so Cox what, was in one of the bad, was in like D. Reed. D. Reed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So. Okay, so the, he was the eagle eye of science. Sorry, Dan. Yeah, he, um, he, everyone was petrified of sort of putting up a new theory because he would take it down. Um, and he had two things that were, I don't know, very obsessed in his, he obsessed over in his life. One was the number 137, 137. And this is still, I love, this is my favorite number. When you guys did an episode about the most important number in the world, <laughs> yeah. this, this is the most important number in the world. 137. 137. So this is, so there's a, there's a writer called Michael Brooks, and he says that this number is a number, it just keeps appearing everywhere. 
It's it's a number that uh, it determines how stars burn, how chemistry happens, uh, whether atoms exist at all. This this number keeps coming up, and what it's called is I have to write it down because it's it is proper science that mm. I don't fully understand. <laughs> but um, so uh, it's you uh, could say anything at this point to be honest, yeah. Richard. Do us. It's okay. So it's known as the fine structure constant. So the number 137. Right. And basically it was so important. Richard Feynman thought, for example, the periodic table would end with 137 okay, elements. He right. thought he thought this number was so important. Other scientists have said that if aliens are coming to visit us, what should our first words be to it? It should just be a sign with the number 137 on it to show that we know that, that we're a higher intelligence. Yes. We're aware that this number is here. So he obsessed over 137. He thought, if I can crack that, I'm going to crack the meaning of everything, the theory of everything. He's one of my favorite characters. He's my favorite story in the whole book, which I put in as a footnote, <laughs> is to do with him. He was an Austrian scientist, and he grew up in the time where it was the rise of Nazism, but he was very, very anti-Nazism. He refused ever to sig Heil, for example, quite openly said, you will never see me sig Heiling. But his buddy, who's a scientist called Gamow, writes there was this horrible moment in his life where um, Wolfgang Pauli was at a party and accidentally fell off a boat and in doing so broke his arm and unfortunately when he was put into a cast had him on a six month permanent sick aisle um, there's a, the, the doctor behind that cast location was in on it for absolute <laughs> certain yeah. We're we're bringing you to the Hitler Youth Academy Hospital. It's quite <laughs> unusual. <laughs> oh, brilliant. But so his his proper bit of batshit was that he thought that he had some sort of inner power that meant that anytime he was around proper uh, scientific equipment, he had the power to make it explode. Things just went <laughs> wrong when he was near it. And it was <laughs> It was known as the Pauli effect, and it got so bad that every time he was near something, there would just be an explosion, and certain scientists banned him from entering their laboratory when oh, they were working on something. On. Yeah, this is absolutely true. He got banned from a few places because they said, we don't know what's going on, but just things break when you're around. He's and Magneto. They... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's Magneto. And they got to the point where if something went wrong, they would try to find out where Pauli was, if he was in the vicinity. <laughs> Where's Pauli? Just because, yeah, there was one case where was this mis- He was in a striped top. <laughs> the, there, was a, there was a story where a big machine broke and they went, where's Pauli? And he was out of town. So they're like, it couldn't have been him. And when he got back to town, they were like, oh, we thought this might have been you because on this day, this machine broke. And he went, wait, what day? And they said, oh, on, on this specific day. And he went, Oh, okay. And this why? Is it well I was actually traveling across to a different city at the time, but the train I got pit stopped in this city <laughs> on that day oh, in roughly God. those hours. So he was he was someone who people believed in. And it was such a reputation that even students tried to prank him. So there was a prank where they rigged up a chandelier for when he entered a room for it to just drop from the ceiling and smash so they could go the Pauli effect. But when he walked in, the rig that they made broke and so it didn't fall so like the pally effect stopped the prank from happening he reverse pallied them he reverse pallied them you double you can't bluff a pally he double bluffs you 
I looked away that and said, he told us the, the most important number of the world and then had to look up the scientific term and then went, a big machine broke for the next anecdote. Because <laughs> he saw the glazed look in our eyes and thought, big machine is their level of scientific knowledge. Well, the guy I do my radio show with, not Neil, the good guy called Dermot, he seems to have the Pauli effect. Like, he, ah. all of our tech people, these very, very smart people who run an entire network of radio stations and towers and broadcast and digital and everything. And he'll go in and go, uh, guys, every time I do this, like this happens. And they're like, no, that, that, that can't happen. No, no. Every time I do this, and then they'll come down from their like technical room and they'll come down and sit and go, look, you're just not. Oh, uh. Sorry, hang on a sec. Let me just get my boss. And they come down. They literally cannot explain whatever it is he has done to whatever he touches. He He's got around. it. He's like a human electromagnetic death ray or something. He's phenomenal. Did they ever figure it out then? This no. this effect of for either Wolfgang Pauli <laughs> or or Dermot no, Whelan. Wolfgang's far more impressive. And what did he What did he win the Nobel Prize for? Wolfgang. He won it for it was it's it was actually so complicated that I just had to brush over it in my book. Um, he won it for the exclusion principle and otherwise known as the Pauli principle. And I I genuinely don't know what that is. It's quantum physics, so right. it's really deep. Um, Which but it means was, you 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 know what it, but you don't know it. You know yeah. it at all levels. One version of you knows it. I think that covers it. I think that covers. Yeah, exactly. So he, he, you know, this stuff kept happening to him. So he had two things. He was trying to find 137, 137 is the answer to the life of the universe. But in the background, these things kept happening. And he became obsessed with it to the point where he wrote a book with Carl Jung to talk about whether or not he had telepathic powers and whether or not telekinesis was also part of it, whether mentally he was breaking these things. But anyway, so he never got to the bottom of it because he died quite young. He had a sudden illness, I think, with cancer, and he was rushed to a hospital, and he died in that hospital, and he died in room 137. Ah, uh, no. No. Yeah. And his last uh, pulse was 137 over 50, is <laughs> his, his blood pressure. Surely it wind him up. Like, I would play snook with him, and I'd take off, like, two reds, the black... Uh, at, a, at a yellow at some point I'd make sure he finished darts on 137 yeah. I'd start I'd start putting it into his life basically I, what I'm saying is I'd sign the man and say that's what I would do <laughs> yeah. I, I shouldn't say that but I think I would that is yeah. phenomenal nobelitis it's terrible. nobelitis it's amazing it's disappointing in some ways Dan you know like I mean it's a beautiful set of stories but ultimately you want these people who are so vaunted in this world of science and advancement of humanity to then also be sound but well, i it's, guess it's logical though as well in some ways because if you think you get rewarded for being an out-of-the-box thinker and you uh then that would just encourage you to do it more and a lot of these people they just do much a lot more <laughs> i read some stuff about it saying that a lot of people when they win the nobel prize they actually win it and the phrase was past their peak but it is 20 or 30 years a lot of the time beyond when they actually did the research so that's the thing yeah and often you have to uh well you've got to be alive to win it as well so it's given purely so there's a lot of people who don't get the recognition like with dna there's arguments that there was a third name in there and it was a female name and then there's so few female scientists that win nobel prizes largely because of the discrimination against them but also by the time these things are awarded sometimes they happen to be dead and so they just don't get listed on right. the on the thing 
Jocelyn Bell Burnell is the other famous one who yes. didn't get the Nobel Prize. Yes, um, that's right. For pulsars or pulsars. something. Pulsars. Yeah. Um, I was once on a radio telescope, the largest radio telescope in the world in Puerto Rico, shitting myself you were for, on a sci- for a science program um, <laughs> that involved pulsars. It involved shitting on telescopes. <laughs> it was... It's, did you know um, where 007 fights 006, Sean Bean and... Pierce Brosnan fight in Goldeneye on that massive di- disc. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's that's a radio telescope in Puerto Rico. But anyway, that's uh-huh. Jocelyn Bell Burnell that said that she didn't get her just desserts. Dan Schreiber, what an introduction to our podcast. I say introduction because you're coming back. You are I don't care what, certain. <laughs> what you say. If you want to read more stories like that, and there's many, many, many stories as wild and entertaining and factual as that. Uh, the Theory of Everything Else by Dan is out now in all good bookshops. Thanks a million, Dan. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. That was a great fun. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That, Dave? I would suggest, apart from the fact that I told you about the most expensive cheese in the world, which in itself is worth knowing, mm, mm. then Dan Schreiber comes along and the raccoon reference enough was <laughs> enough to justify his appearance on the show. What a man. Nobel like, syndrome. Yeah. The, people just kind of, some of them lose to run themselves and think they're experts in everything. It's understandable, I suppose, when you get that level of accolade. I mean, you know, if we ever win any kind of a podcast award, I'm immediately going to, like, burn all other podcasts because we'll be the only one in town. That's all that will ever matter. <laughs> that, that's, that sounds good to me. I would maybe maybe leave no such things as fish off that list. Considering... Possibly, yeah. We'd have no guests. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank yeah, you for yeah. the time there. Do check out his book. It's really entertaining read. Um, but, but, that's done. It's in the past. It's like an X. We have to move on from that now. <laughs> Dave. Okay. What have you got for us for next week? I actually, I'm, I'm going to repeat a little uh, snippet of what we did before, because a few weeks back, I told you, I was going to tell you about the coldest village oh, yes. on earth. But then mm. we got distracted by the beautiful story of Wojciech the Bear. Uh, so I'm going to bring you that conversation next time. We're going to meet a YouTuber called Kuhn, who is from the coldest village on earth. And the story she has to tell will blow your mind. Do not miss it. It's phenomenal. That sounds absolutely class. Uh, I suppose I better be here for that. If you want to listen to him on the radio, check him out on the radio uh, on Today FM. I'm doing live gigs as always, doing Vicar Street again in September the 30th. And keep getting in touch because some of the suggestions we've gotten from the listeners have been deadly. And then they give us a little trail for us to, to chase down and chase our experts. So please keep suggesting those as well. Thanks a million. Talk to you next time. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively. But not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability. Because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more.